Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Steve Barrett. I'm the editorial director of PR Week. Going to guide you gently through another show, recording from home, but we are kind of back in the office as well, so doing like uh, half and half. And uh, my co-host today is Sabrina Sanchez, who is in the office. So uh, welcome, Sabrina. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. Thanks for having me. And yes, I am reporting to you from the office. Yes. Which is quite empty right now. The mythical office. And um, Sabrina's our reporter covering Gen Z, youth marketing, and, and diverse issues for PR Week and campaigns. So um, it was great to uh, it was great to see you in the office uh, yesterday. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of the voluntary office thing, which tends to mean. Actually, not many people go in, but that's a, that's probably a whole other show. And I wrote a blog about that last week. And our guest this week is Audrey Ponzio, who's CEO and impact strategist at APC Collective. So welcome, Audrey. Audrey, how are you doing? Fine. Thank you so much, Steve and Sabrina, for having me as a guest. I've long been a fan and it's nice to be uh, included on the episode. So thank you. Yeah, well, pleasure to have you on. Calling in from Austin, Texas. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to chatting. We will talk to Audrey, then we'll talk about a few big stories this week. What a, another crazy news week. Uh, the whole Facebook thing with uh, the outage and the sort of uh, whistleblower 60 Minutes program, the you know regulatory scrutiny, etc. An ongoing story. We'll chat about that. Curious story about Aussie media. Which sort of uh, rose from the ashes, or is it rising from the ashes after a tumultuous week? And uh, yeah, we'll dig into that. The Pandora Papers, that mysterious sort of revelations of massive tranches of uh, data, another one of those has dropped. So I guess there's been a lot of nervous people out there across politics and. uh, business and uh, everywhere, actually. <laughs> so uh, we'll find out about that. Budweiser and giant skeletons. That's the real stuff we've come here to talk about. <laughs> so, yeah, we, and, uh, and Generation TikTok as well. And Allison and Partners, they've expanded to Latin America. We'll find out about that. And former White House Press Secretary under the Trump administration, Stephanie Grisham, has released a book. So we'll chat about that as well. But let's talk to you first, Audrey. Um Tell us about the APC Collective, because uh, you spent ten years, nearly ten years at Edelman, I think, in New York. But now you're uh, you're working for a, a, a collaborative uh, group, communications agency. So tell us all about that. Sure. Yes, I did spend nine years with Edelman. I helped uh, lead the multicultural offering out of the New York office, working with the network across the U.S. And it was incredible. I consider myself an Edelmanite for life. I have a lot of respect and love for Richard and his family and every mentor I had throughout those nine years. Um, When I left, I feel like it was a graduation of sorts. I had a certain skill set. I had a lot of contacts, some of which I couldn't touch because that's just the way it works when you leave a big firm after a long time. Um, And a lot of conversations that I wanted to have and and wanted to be able to engage in a way that felt true to me and true to what I wanted to build next. Um, 
coming from a diverse background. I think my name is ethnically ambiguous, as is my face. But I had been groomed in uh, community engagement, public affairs, and all things DEI since the very beginning of my career. I always felt like I was that plus something else. It kind of straddled two worlds and realities. I'm a very proud El Paso native. And um, I just kind of wanted to do it a different way. So I started saying yes to projects, big and small. And eventually, one of the bigger projects was uh, of the sort that they wanted to invest and kind of help me build out an agency. And so that's how APC Collective started. Um, It was with the help of Sprint. Eventually, they got acquired by T-Mobile, and we continue to service and support T-Mobile. But the collective idea is around we have a core team, but we don't pretend to have every competency or tool or capability in-house. So we partner with some brilliant, I would say 100% diverse owned, whether it's BIPOC, LGBTQIA, or, or women owned uh, agencies and collaborators. So we've been in business officially for about six years now. So it's it's going well. It's been busy Busy yeah, times. I bet it has. And you've got Sprint, but you've got some other really high-profile customers as well. What sort of work are they uh, commissioning you to do? What, what what type of assignments are you taking on? The assignments range. I think um, within the industry, I'm pretty well known for all things multicultural community communi- engagement and, and overall communications, so inclusive programming. So for um, Sprint, the, the original assignment started with Hispanic community and media relations and influencer engagement. For T-Mobile, they knew that we had experience in segment marketing, and it, it, it's really translatable and transferable skills if you know how to target an audience specifically and mindfully and how to engage credibly and authentically, then you know how to engage with different segments. And so for T-Mobile, we actually were tapped last year to help lead their 55-plus uh, offering to engage with 55-plus consumers. So it, it varies. We do DEI work for Bumble uh, and their headquarters here in Austin, but global global work on DEI and employee engagement work for uh, Whataburger, which is a beloved Texas-rooted uh, burger chain that started here but it's growing nationally. We also do... Um, Kind of stakeholder engagement and media relations for a conservation nonprofit focused on getting industry across Texas to invest in more conservation and sustainability practices. And that's actually a nonpartisan nonprofit that was founded by uh, Laura Bush and her friends. And so it varies. I feel like that the through line is we drive impact and it's sometimes and often it's more than just impressions or press. It could be really notable relationships or uh stakeholder meetings with industry. It could look like things that will never get headlines, but deserve to. Um, But that's not what they're looking for. If they're looking to move the needle on recruitment or retention for their employees, then that's what we do. So hence the impact strategist and the tagline. Yeah, sounds fascinating and important work. How's that been over the last 18 months in sort of the COVID lockdown? And also with the racial reckoning of last year, where one would assume that brands have been looking to double down on this sort of work. Um, How's it been for you? You know, I I think 2020 was rough, both on a personal and professional level. I feel like we saw a lot of the inequities that we knew existed, but never truly at the front um, of every headline and newspaper uh, came to light. It was horrible the way it happened. It needed to happen. It, I think change can always come from something horrific. Um, but I think truth was brought to bear. And I think, and, and that's just with the racial reckoning. I think with COVID, 
um, the realities of essential workers, who is essential, what are their day-to-day truths, how is work not an option to skip it, um, the inequities as it relates to health, social determinants of health, and who's impacted most by underlying disease states that would then put them at higher risk of being affected or potentially dying from COVID. So it was real. I think we saw a lot of clients pull back. I think we lost about 60% of our client budgets because they didn't know what was going to happen. Events got canceled for those that we activate for. Um, and luckily I'm a saver for better or worse. My husband and I always joke, I need to invest more, but I save a ton and I, I committed to not wanting to let anybody go despite the economic realities. And we all agreed that we were going to be very mindful and intentional with how we showed up for our families and each other. Um, we would take time to go do Costco runs because in some cases people were the only non-immunocompromised individual in their families or households of three generations. So we, we just had a lot of patience and a lot of heart for what we each were going through, but then also double down in our values. So we did office hours for small businesses that had been impacted. We, in some cases, kept council going at a pro bono rate for some of the nonprofits we worked with. And, and we just started being about the things that we know were true, like our values and, and being of service to any community that needed it, any business, any nonprofit that, that couldn't necessarily pivot as fast with all the resources that some of the bigger brands and companies had at their disposal. So we doubled down and, and, and I'm happy to report, I, I do believe energy is public and it transfers. And at the end of 2021, we actually got a, a chunk of new business that has sustained us. And it's been a, it's been a good year. It's been a busy year but a, a very full one. Good to hear. Good to hear. You made a good point there. Um, you know, we kind of obsess a lot about, you know, working from home and uh, mm-hmm. whether we should go back to an office-based environment, but f- rather conveniently forgetting that most people don't have that choice. And, yeah. uh, you know, there was a study, uh, the Bureau, American Labor Bureau statistics showed that only 13% of the workforce in August was was working from home. So the majority of Americans are going into a physical workplace. You know, they don't have the option to. And that's, that seems to be forgotten a lot, doesn't it, in this sort of yeah. rather navel-gazing debate about what, should we go back to the office? Should we be you know, totally working from home? Yeah, and 87%, that's not the reality. And you brought up a really good point. I read your blog. I read your blog. So I, I did see that statistic and I wasn't surprised. It felt in, somewhat intuitive just given the communities that we work with, but it also was eye-opening. Um, luckily, I think, and 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 this sounds selfish, but in 2016, when I started the firm, not knowing <laughs> what it was going to look like, all of a sudden having to be responsible for real employees on my dime, I... I asked everybody to work from where they thrive, and it sounded like a really good tagline that we could put on a website because I, I wasn't sure if it was going to work. And I knew that I had traveled for about a year going back and forth between New York and Texas when I was consulting. And um, so we we have a, a complete virtual team. We've always been a distributed workforce, and I really don't care where people log in so long as they do. So we yeah. were we were COVID ready on that front. Yeah, um, in some ways, the uh, the crisis kind of just accelerated disruption that was maybe already in the works. So, yeah, it's certainly going to be an on-running story about that. Sabrina, you wrote uh, recently an analysis of the sort of Hispanic PR agency market and the different ownership structures. You know, some have gone in into holding companies, some have left hold, holding companies, some have taken a, 
have you know been taken over but by an independent others have made remained resolutely independent what what do you think the big trends were that you saw when you did that piece yeah yeah steve i did do that piece and i had a pleasure of speaking with audrey for that as well um but in terms of the trends that i was seeing for that so as you mentioned, you know, a lot of the Hispanic firms, some have gone into a holding company model, others have um, decided to go independent. Um, you know, specifically, for instance, Access Agency bought itself out of Interpublic Group last year. Um, you know, in Spain, LLYC has acquired numerous firms and even filed for an IPO. But the general consensus that I'm hearing across the board from all the agency leaders is that they're doing whatever works for them and their clients. Um, and the key here is actually strategy and making sure that in order to reach Hispanic audiences, they do so in a contextual way, meaning appealing to multiple characteristics of the Hispanic uh, population, whether it's food, values, traditions, language. Um, and so, you know, for different reasons, um, agencies are taking different paths. And, you know, for the ones that have chosen to stay independent, um, it's because they feel that they don't want to necessarily be thrown into a, a larger group that cannot really focus on the Hispanic audience specifically. Whereas the ones that have gone into a holding company model or been acquired are doing so because they want to increase their scale. So across the board, you know, there's different motivations for the structures, but definitely the consensus is reaching them has to do with context and it has to do with you know, appealing to the, the modern Hispanic, the younger Hispanic, which now represents a huge portion of the population. The census shows that there are now 62.1 million Hispanic people in the U.S., and there's a spending power of almost $1.5 trillion. So there's a lot of money at stake here. That's absolutely right. And then, Audrey, um, it's not a group that you, you can just put in one bucket, is it? Uh, you know, it's, it's many disparate audiences, many mm -hmm. different, so you, you approach different, just as you would any other audience. So yeah. how do you, uh, what, what was your take on that? Uh, and, and where do you stand on it? In terms of the industry shift of, of getting- Yeah, I mean, well, the, the two things there, I guess. Um, the, one is how you, how you structure your agency, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of ownership and independence versus holding company etc and then the secondly on how you approach uh, hispanic audiences you know when Perfect. maybe certain people would look at it as just one big big group when clearly it isn't there's many disparate ele elements to that absolutely so from the first point we actually um started the firm i think with two ideas either you get so good that someone makes an offer that you can't refuse and and the independent agencies there's few of them that that have the reputation and size and scope and conversation that i i think we'd, we'd be honored to be a part of and the second is develop a new model and secure funding and and start doing the gobbling or aligning I think the interesting thing for us specifically is i i was very intentional that i wanted to attract an array of talent that was this, but but other as well. And, and so from a diversity perspective, we lean into it as we need to, as we should, as we should always embrace who we are and where we, and who we come from. But I don't let that relegate the conversations that we can have. And so um, we actually had an instance recently where we were approached to get acquired by a larger firm, a very incredibly good firm. And I feel like at some point, the soul searching that was happening on my end is if we do get acquired, are we going to allow it to be our biggest, most um, 
passionate and purpose-driven selves? Or are we going to be relegated into a specific conversation or topic that feels comfortable given the makeup of the firm or given the, the gaps that exist because of the makeup of the firm? So I think it's a balancing act. I do feel like from the the organizations that I know and the, the agencies that I know and that I've get to work with on a regular basis, all diverse owned, we all struggle with that because there's gaps to fill in mindfully engaging audiences that are diverse. But there's also bigger budgets and in, in, in bigger campaigns that are more expansive and inclusive. And so there is this toggle of, you know, do we lean into this Latinx story or do we kind of broaden out and say, like, actually, we can do general market work. We can do the whole country. It doesn't have to be relegated to people who look like us. So I think we philosophically all struggle with that. Um, I've seen some firms that are owned by holding companies. They're good. They're magically good. I mean, they do really incredible work. But even within the holding company, there is that infighting between who gets to dominate the conversation. Well, when you think about market growth, that's going to be largely fueled, just like the population by multicultural consumers. Who needs to lead that strategy is, is, is where the fight kind of happens. And I say fight, you know, being pithy, but it, ultimately it, it does seem to be a little struggle for budget and client um, ownership. And so I'm, I'm, I, I think I'm still on the outs as it relates to what is our path forward. I don't think we're at the, the, the big point yet where we have to make a huge decision, but we are growing year over year and it's exciting. So I, I think we're open to entertain options so long as it takes in, as long as those options take in the full context of who we are and, and what we bring to the table. Yeah, I mean, there's no one right way, is there? And it's there isn't. the right way for each person at the particular time. And I think a lot of uh, firms are built with by people with a big entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, sometimes if you're then subsumed into a much larger structure, you feel a bit constrained by that. So, yeah. yeah, there's lots of different things to take into account. But one thing that was very noticeable from Sabrina's piece was how many great firms there are and doing a lot of brilliant work. And that's good to see. And yeah. Uh, Sabrina outlined the scope and size of the market now, and that's you not going to get any smaller. So, you know, this this is uh, this is going to be get more and more general markets. So, yeah. yeah, fascinating stuff. Thanks, Audrey. Great to chat to you, and we'll get your input into our topical subjects. Um, Sabrina, another big week, another big Facebook story, but loads of different layers to this one. Give us the full skinny. <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> yeah. right. So here's the download. So Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp had outages for a significant amount of time on Monday due to what they say is a routine maintenance job gone wrong. So apparently it's, quote, backbone network or one of the main networks that links all the data to different servers went out because of an unintentional command made to the systems. Now, this caused a number of different reactions um, online. Twitter ended up with a huge amount of traffic as a result because all of Facebook's apps were down. Um, and so they tweeted, they said, hello, literally everyone. And it became a huge social media joke. Other brands chimed in, including WhatsApp and Instagram. Jack Dorsey responded and it became a huge um, you know, engagement moment. Uh, a lot of people were praising Twitter actually for throwing shade and they were calling it the greatest app of all time. Um, so. I should backtrack here for a second, though, that this also happened um, right after Facebook's whistleblower revealed her identity on 60 Minutes, uh, Frances Haugen, and she is the woman behind the Wall Street Journal's Facebook files, which shows that um, internal studies at Facebook 
revealed that the company knew about harmful content and its impact on teen mental health, misinformation, sex trafficking, et cetera. Um, and it was also one day before Facebook was supposed to have a congressional hearing on the Facebook files. So what do you think? Coincidence or not? Yeah, that's the big question, isn't it? Um, it was there's a lot of conspiracy stories going around. First of all, on Twitter, I mean, be careful what you wish for, because I remember many times when Twitter went down, you know, and uh, yeah. Jack Dorsey was being a bit cheeky there. But uh, hey, we, we don't mind a bit of cheekiness. Um, was it a coincidence that uh, we had this big outage, you know, at that time? And actually, it, it affects a lot of people. I, I don't know if this is a generational thing, but I didn't even notice. But Sabrina, you definitely did. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're using WhatsApp all the time and Insta probably. Um, but so what do you think, Audrey? I think it's all good timing, given the hearings and the issues with disinformation and the propagation of the issue. And literally our democracy is at stake and they are the platform that either can make or break the future, not just of U.S. democracy, but kind of of all issues facing our planet. I think on a, on a deeper level, I know um, brands reacted and it, and it was kind of funny and interesting. I liked uh, Snickers, like maybe they just needed a Snickers. And so I think it was like a funny moment for brand engagement. I do think it brings to light like the proliferation of, of the platforms across the globe. Interesting enough, Facebook's biggest advertisers are not um, are not the big companies. The big companies obviously throw hundreds of millions of dollars at Facebook and Instagram on a, on a regular basis, but the, the bulk of their business and revenue comes from smaller businesses. And so that kind of brings to light the need for kind of a multi-platform approach and 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 even maybe bears some uh, potential reaction to traditional modes of, of marketing, not that they're going to come back in full force the way digital has, but it, it just has a lot of different ramifications uh, on that front. I also think... Um, we should be thinking about bigger issues of what they do and whether or not it is uh, a platform that needs to be re re regulated, sorry, my, my language, regulated, so as not to be so big or bulky or have an outage affect 3.5 billion um, members on the planet. So I, there's a lot of questions, whether it's a coincidence or conspiracy theory, I always think things are connected, but I, I try not to to live in a conspiracy-filled world. Yeah, I think drive ourselves crazy yeah. if we did that. Um, yeah, it, you make a good point about the small businesses that rely on that platform to function, and that's uh, another layer to the story, which is, what you know, different to the whole macro thing about disinformation, and, and especially in countries outside the U.S. Um, it was interesting that Mark Zuckerberg came out Tuesday night, didn't he, and uh, made statements. So the, the other layer to this is how Facebook reacted from a communications point of view. They had... Nick Clegg, their head of comms, was on CNN on Sunday trying to get ahead of the 60-minute story. There were some of their regulatory folks and comms folks on Twitter getting eviscerated, actually, for trying to sort of undermine the whistleblower. So uh, it, it, there's also this element about the West Coast and the tech firm's attitude to the media, this slightly uh, holier-than-thou attitude. And... Um, and they did mention that they'd been calling for regulation themselves, that the Internet is, you know, the regulation of the Internet is a couple of decades old and hasn't really been updated to reflect the new world of social yeah. media. And, and we've seen with some of these members of Congress, they really don't understand. There was What was it last week, Sabrina? One of the one of the one of them asked uh, the Facebook rep about something and just frankly showed his complete ignorance. And uh, there's still that part of it that, that the. 
regulators need to be more informed. So there, there are so many layers to this, but, um, you know, quite... Um, it was quite telling that Facebook's share price fell considerably in their value. Uh, you know, it's still making billions and billions of dollars, but yeah. it's, a, it's a big story. And um, the other layer I, th- I saw, um, a lot of people signed up to alternative messaging services because WhatsApp was unavailable. So Signal and Telegram were getting a lot of traffic. Um, Sabrina, do you think uh, people are going to move away from? I think a lot of people have, have moved away from Facebook already, especially in your generation. But will they move away from Insta and WhatsApp as well? Yeah, I think it's. Um, it remains to be seen. I do think that the younger generation has moved away from Facebook, Facebook's app. But uh, Instagram is still very popular, and I know that WhatsApp is very popular among multicultural people. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, Steve, that I noticed, and I definitely did, because in the Dominican Republic, that's our main form of communication is WhatsApp. So, um, you know, there's a lot of people that rely on some of these apps for communication, for commerce. Um, and so, unfortunately, I think, um, you know, Facebook is just huge. It, it has its tentacles and everything, and it'll be difficult to say for sure whether or not people will will move away and it'll die. Yeah, no, I, I do communicate with what with it's, it's especially useful for communicating with people in other countries, whether it's whether it's WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger. So that that's a good point. Yeah, let's just say this story is going to run and run. So we'll see how that one plays out. Another big story of the week, Sabrina, was the Aussie media story, which was sort of. Uh, a media company that had risen incredibly quickly and then fell apart in a week, really. It was the um, opinion piece in the New York Times on, on uh, a week last Monday. And, and by the end of the week, the company was dead in the water. And then then we got the, the kicker on Monday. Talk us through it. Yeah, this one had my head spinning. I was trying so hard to keep up with this story. So uh, Aussie Media's co-founder, Carlos Watson, said on Monday that the company is open for business and that it's in talks with advertising partners after it said on the Friday prior that it was shutting down. So for background, Aussie Media has been making headlines for more than a week now after a New York Times article published said that Aussie's other co-founder, Samir Rao, impersonated a YouTube exec on a call with Goldman Sachs. So PR Week reported that in the aftermath of the report, Aussie lost advertisers and media partners like Dentsu, uh, Target, and Ford. Um, And in the wake of an FBI probe and a board investigation, the board and Aussie's law firm, Paul Weiss, hired crisis PR firm, The Levinson Group, to do damage control. But last Friday, an internal memo from Watson said, that the board was dissolving. And as a result, the law firm and the PR firm weren't retained. So this story is very convoluted because while Watson says the company is open for business, there is no game plan up to this point for how it will operate and the board has been dissolved. So whether Ozzy will ever recover from this is anybody's guess. At this point, it seems like Ozzy is radioactive. Yeah, and he it shows his power and his influence that he got on Good Morning America on Monday morning to sort of give the revelation that we're, we're no we're not we're, we're we're still up and running we're still running so what do you what's your take on it audrey it, i i felt that part of this was that people are looking for diverse owned media outlets to you know spend ad dollars with and that there is actually a dearth of uh, black owned media of, of other you know BIPOC owned media outlets but, but one i'd love to get your take on it 
I definitely think it speaks to his pool to be able to do the amount of media he's done in such a short amount of time with or without an agency. It's impressive. So um, those connections definitely pay off. I also think it's a nuanced case of, I always say, Operation Don't Be Shady. Um, there may, you know, it pretty much that if you just follow that one rule, it will keep you out of trouble. And there may be also um, some startup desperation to appease investors or attract new ones while the ship comes correct. But you also, on the other hand, have public companies that have yet to be profitable, but they go the route of 110% SEC alignment with integrity. And you have to wonder what kind of expectations or sense of expectations do two BIPOC founders feel the need to deliver on if at some point, whether it's a mental crisis or not, the, they, I, I guess one of them impersonated an industry player and an option um, kind of as a dramatic move to close a deal. I also wonder how many other dramatic deal closing moves have been made that we don't know about or get to investigate or make judgments on. So it's it's disheartening. I do think there was a ton of focus being looked at um, as it relates to post-racial reckoning, the disparities across industry from an ownership and who gets invested in perspective. So um, I think the pressure is real to perform if you have investors. And I feel like this, this bigger theme uh, at one point, I think uh, a friend of mine in the industry and I joked that headlines are pretty much made off of the seven deadly sins or the antithesis of the seven deadly sins and all things goodness and selflessness. And so this just feels like um, like one of those moments of fear and, and potentially greed and that fake it until you make it Silicon Valley attitude. But it has served a lot of companies. And so it, it's just really disheartening to see what I was hopeful for in terms of a viable modern media company thrive. And, and so TBD, whatever Carlos can pull out of a hat, I'm, I'm hopeful. But I also think there's a lot of repairing and reputation uh, to, to undo whatever has been done. Yeah, I mean, we've seen with the Theranos case, haven't we, which is currently in court in the Elizabeth yeah. Holmes, how another, you know, business built on metrics that doesn't look like they were very solid. And uh, the whole media measurement um, um, is a, is an issue we've been covering a lot on our sister title campaign. But uh, what do you, do you think there is... There is a problem here with that there isn't enough diverse owned media for advertisers to spend on because we saw uh, holding companies, uh, advertising holding companies investing in Aussie media and we saw other media companies investing as well. They really wanted this to work, didn't they? And they really wanted to uh, to be a part of it. Yeah, I think I think the investments need to continue. I think diverse owned media, I feel like the storytelling of diverse stories needs to to be doubled down on an investment. I think kids, people, generations that haven't necessarily seen themselves reflected deserve to see themselves reflected in storytelling. So I think it's two-part. I think the bigger media that is owned by holding companies or conglomerates need to really diversify um, the storytellers so that the stories reflect reality. I also think we need more options as it relates to diverse media. So I'm not... I think we need a ton of options. I also think from an investor community, I think we really have to look at what we hold companies, startups, and those that have been invested in, what kind of standards. We can't have this evolution of SEG reports and that we all believe in purpose and we all believe in investing in companies that are trying to solve for the world's issues. We all believe in diversity and then hold these these companies to to standards for profitability that make them nervous enough to to lose their values and integrity. 
And and so I feel like we have bigger, it, it's bigger than a headline. It's bigger than a one-liner. I don't know that I have the right quote for it, but I, I think we constantly need to look at these headlines with a bit of nuance and self-reflection to see what are the bigger issues at play that would make someone feel they have to impersonate a stakeholder to get the funding. What kind of pressure are companies under that make them want to go out and gobble all the competitors because they don't want that competition? So it, it, it's, I think it's so nuanced and um probably yeah, longer than the podcast has time for it. Yeah, it's interesting perspective, Audrey. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, we are, we are running a bit behind. So let's whip through the rest of the stories. Um, give us the past notes on the Pandora Papers, Sabrina, <laughs> if you can. That's a massive terabytes of data, but anyway. Yeah, so the Pandora Papers contains 11.9 million records leaked from 14 firms in the offshore financial services industry that depicts how the wealthy hide their assets. Uh, so it was a huge collaboration between the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists and um, a whole bunch of media partners with over 600 journalists working on it. And essentially the information that it contains is about prominent and wealthy people making estate and luxury residence purchases, um, but they're legally paying less taxes than they otherwise would through tactics like cloaking their companies. So it's significant because obviously there's been an increasing perception of the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, and just, um, you know, a huge gap between the taxes that lower income people pay versus the wealthy. Yeah, it's, um, and, you know, a lot of this stuff is legal, right? It's uh, some of it's illegal, but a lot of it's legal and it's a problem with the tax system as much as anything. But uh, I'd love a few of these companies. There was a, a telecoms company in the UK that, decided to pay its fair share of tax. It decided not to take advantage of all these loopholes. That was their purposeful commitment. And uh, I would love to see a few more businesses do that, but maybe I'm just being naive anyway. Um, now, tell us about Budweiser and giant Skellingtons, as we call them. Yeah, so this was a really cool idea. So last year, Home Depot's 12-foot skeletons with lift uh, LiFi sold out after they went viral on social media, specifically TikTok. Um, and they cost $300, by the way. I just wanted to note that. But anyway. You're going to get one? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, earlier this year, they uh, announced that they were bringing them back to stores. So Budweiser jumped on the opportunity and made Halloween costumes for the skeletons that look like a Budweiser can. So now customers can dress their skeletons up for the occasion. But interestingly, it was organic. According to a spokesperson from Allison and Partners, it wasn't a partnership. Um, it was just something that they decided to hop on. Yeah, well, that's the best type of uh, marketing, isn't it? No doubt they will then make TikTok videos with uh, with those outfits, yeah? Because uh, that's what Generation TikTok does. Is that, the, is that the case, Sabrina? I hope so. I love spooky season. Okay. <laughs> and stick, sticking with uh, Alison, by the way, is it just English people who call them Skellingtons or is that, uh, does that cross, cross to the US? I think it's the English. Yes, I think, judging by the silence, this sort of, what's, <laughs> it, what's he talking about? Yeah. Um, sticking with Alison and Partners, they've expanded into Latin America. So uh, talk us through that one, Sabrina. Yeah, Allison and Partners is opening offices in Latin America through a partnership with Grouper Garnier, an affiliate of Allison's parent holding company, Stagwell. So they will be expanding into Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Panama, Honduras, Ecuador, Peru, 
and Mexico. And they will be working with North American brands entering Latin America and the U.S. Hispanic market. So, uh, Audrey, the distinct markets, aren't they? There's the Hispanic U.S. market, Latin Latinx market, and then there's obviously the Spanish-speaking countries abroad and you often see agencies in Miami or, or LA uh, you know servicing those markets do you do you do any business uh, in countries like that or it's, do you see it as a very different uh, different type of business we do do work in Puerto Rico and, and in Mexico we actually have an agency partner helping us uh, in Puerto Rico sorry in Mexico um, so yeah we, we we definitely think they're distinct markets I think they're distinct regions and and territories and countries so we like to partner with local players to make sure that we're adding that authentic value to clients seeking to expand their footprint um, in terms of the move for Alice and partners it makes total sense I think there's a lot of opportunities in the region. And, and I wonder, though, from a U.S. Um, Hispanic perspective, if that kind of signals where some of the industry RFPs and client requests are coming as it relates to shoring up Hispanic capabilities and competencies. But um, it's always good. I think I think anytime you get more players involved in in engagement of the, the audiences that are going the fastest, it just makes the work stronger. So it's exciting to see. Yeah, and very, very creative markets. You, you see a lot of brilliant work um, coming out of those those countries uh, and often winning at Cannes. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Allison Partners does with that. And then to finish off, let's talk about the former White House press secretary during the Trump administration, Stephanie Grisham, who's just released a new book with some interesting revelations, Sabrina. What caught your eye? Yeah, so uh, Stephanie Grisham, the former Trump White House press secretary, uh, by the way, she usually didn't do um, TV appearances or TV briefings, but uh, that's notable because she just released a book called I'll Take Your Questions Now that accuses former President Donald Trump of abusing his staff, uh, placating dictators like uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia and making sexual comments. Um, and so this is interesting because it's, it's part of the reason why she never held a briefing publicly. Um, or at least televised. Uh, she felt that she would be asked to do something that was, uh, in her words, ridiculous or that she wouldn't feel comfortable with um, to try to get the press off of the White House back. Yeah, that's an interesting book title because she didn't take questions during her time in the White House. She never had, she was a press secretary who never held a press conference and uh, in, in the uh, White House press briefing room which was interesting, but she said she, that that was on the orders of her boss and that was the way he wanted it. He felt he could get his messages out better directly without the, the press uh, asking questions. I do remember her the, her first, uh, actually, action was in North Korea, and I remember her a very uh, scrum-like scene where she was trying to make sure that the American journalists got access to the two leaders, as well as the local Korean media, and she was literally putting up, putting her body in the way to. It was a, a quite a, a chaotic scene. So she's an interesting character. But uh, what did you take from this, Audrey, uh, from from the uh, publicity around the book? I think it's going to be interesting. It's going to be a tell-all, and it potentially will have implications on whether or not he decides to run. I feel like he's no stranger to bad headlines or bad press. And for his fan base or, or voter uh, block, they, they don't seem to care. So it'll be interesting to see how it impacts. I know it's going to impact headlines, but whether it impacts perception or or their their love 
of him. It, I, I don't know if it'll matter at this point, because time and time again, we, we've seen that no matter the negative reality, truth or headline, it, it doesn't really dissuade people who believe in the Trump brand. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's true of the Pandora Papers as well, isn't it? We're, we almost we're inundated with revelations now, aren't we? With so many social media and other media outlets that we're almost overwhelmed with it. Things that might have shocked us in the past are just like, well, it's a headline for a day and then it's gone. So that's uh, that's a good point. We should make the make it clear that Stephanie Grisham was also uh, she was formerly head of communications for the First Lady Melania Trump and uh, and Chief of Staff, and I think she resigned on January the 6th uh, that was that was she was she was done and out the doors uh, she went back to that role when she uh, finished as the press secretary so yeah probably worth checking out that book I think Audrey thank you so much for being a guest it's been terrific to chat to you and um, continued success with the collective thank you Stephen thank you Sabrina for having me Yep. Thanks, Sabrina. Always a pleasure. And uh, the big news this week was the New York Library finds, wasn't it? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I love the New York Library. I'm so glad it's open. And you might catch me there one of these days. And they've <laughs> what have they done? They've, they've paused all fines. So you can take you're not going to get fined for having a late book or something. I was never late with my books, but of course you were. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still great news, and hopefully the, the children can take advantage of that. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. All right, so uh, don't forget we're coming back with in-person events. So next week, the Purpose Awards on Wednesday evening in New York City, we will be there in person, and we hope to see lots of you there too. Really looking forward to hanging out with you all again. It'll be our first in-person event for almost two years. Can you believe it? So we are really looking forward to getting together in a safe environment, obviously fully vaccinated, etc. So looking forward to that. And that's part of that's in New York. It's part of our PR decoded conference, which is still virtual, unfortunately. That's from Tuesday to Thursday. So that's October 12th to the 14th. Then on the 28th of October, we'll have our 40 under 40 um, celebration. That's in person again in New York. And the Hall of Fame, that will be in person on the 6th of December. So we're getting back to in-person events and looking forward to that. And don't forget our PR Week Awards entry deadline next Wednesday. I think this is the final one, folks. You have got to get your um, entries in next week. So make sure you're well ahead with putting those together. But that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit PRWeek.com.